Well, we get to Acts chapter 7, and there we find Stephen getting stoned because he was faithfully preaching Christ as a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. But all the Jews could hear in Stephen was anti-Moses, anti-law, that their proud hearts could not receive the truth. And it resulted in this frenzy of rage where Stephen ended up being stoned. Well, brethren, it's always good to, to be with you. It's nice not have to be strapped on to something on my head and kind of like this. In fact, I don't think I've preached from this before. Have I? Have I been? I don't think I have. Well, I'm very thankful that... Uh, I mean, honestly, it's always encouraging to come up here. Um... I mean, the Lord's privileged me at least to be in the attempt of some small works, and uh, two of which didn't really ever get off the ground. Um, but to see this work continue year after year and your faithfulness, and you, <laughs> you might be all dejected and have all kinds of issues in your life and feel discouraged. And brethren, you, the testimony of you guys continuing here is tremendous. And it encourages me. And I know uh, brethren back in San Antonio as well. And uh, I just rejoice in the Lord in that. Um, that He's continued to see fit to have you guys gather. And you guys are committed to one another and to Him. And thankful we have in this season of your life we've been able to send men up here the Lord's given us those gifts we we certainly don't want to sit on them we want to we want to be faithful stewards with what the Lord gives us and and yes I mean if there's men that he's sent I I wouldn't mind hearing from you like I mean uh, you know let me know what you think I mean brother don't send this guy in here again I just don't know I mean I, I, I want honest feedback or we've really benefited from this brother because um, I, I haven't opened up to men, you know, even men were testing gifts and giving them an opportunity. Uh, and so, wanting to give you guys, I want, I'm, at the same time, wanting to send men up here are going to feed your soul and going to be helpful. And, and uh, so, yeah, your feedback's important. I value that. Uh, anyway, what we got here? 320. Raymond says we got the building until 7, so... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I won't, I, won't, I won't test your patience. Acts chapter 11. I want to talk to you out of Acts 11. I, don't, I didn't really ask the men what they've been bringing up here. I'm sure it's messages to encourage you and... I want to encourage you in probably a different vein that maybe they haven't. Um, but Acts chapter 11, this is a message that actually the Lord burdened me to take when I went to Nicaragua and then Nepal earlier this year when I was doing devotion, miss my devotions. This, this, this text came to life to me. And, uh, and so I'm preaching to you, but... This is for myself, too, as a reminder. I think this is so, so important. And this is, this is the central purpose of why we're here, brethren. Um, God's left us here in this earth. So Acts chapter 11, we'll pick up the reading there in verse 19. Now to those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, 
traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God and was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have your word. Thank you for the song we just sang, the reality that we're complete in Christ. Lord, I do thank you for these brethren. Lord, I pray in this hour be be instrumentally used of you to encourage us, remind us um, of why we're here and what you've called the church to do and to be. And, and Lord, Lord, use us. Lord, I pray that uh, the same realities that are, that are spoken of in this text uh, so many years ago and made possible by your Spirit would become a reality in this very dark city that needs Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray just as you did then, you demonstrate it to be the power of God and not of men. And I pray, Father, you'd encourage the hearts of these brethren here, help them. Lord, use them for your namesake in this place. Lord, bless them in their faithfulness and meeting together and waiting upon you, both for a pastor and for you to add to this church and to this little body. Lord, I pray you'd do it for the name of Jesus Christ, for his sake, for his glory. I pray you'd Grant grace and liberty to share now from your word, and in his name we ask, amen. And so, yeah, I want to talk to you today about basically the Great Commission. And, and I mean, Jesus' words, final words to the church, they're, they're unmistakable. Um, our responsibility before him is very clear-cut. And, uh, and yet it seems something his people both you and I, can easily lose sight of, uh, or at least lose priority of. Um, sadly, that's not anything new. It's, it's been a problem with the church from the first century on, really. And that's what I'm hoping to show you here from Scripture. And so let's, let's uh, just quickly remind ourselves, let's go back to, to, to Luke 24, and then we'll jump into the book of Acts again, and we'll work our way up to, to, to what we just read. But Acts, or Luke 24, Luke is also the author of Acts, the book of Acts, and so this is his gospel at the very end of it. Luke records here, Jesus had just revealed himself to his disciples, to the brothers on that road to Emmaus, remember, and they went back and told the disciples, and as they're telling the disciples, Jesus appears, and they're all shocked by this, and Jesus settles them down and shows them the scars in his hands and his feet and asks for something to eat, and so we pick up the reading here in verse 44. Then he said to them, Jesus, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Oh, Lord, open our mind to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Very clear instruction here. What is Jesus' expectation for his people that he's setting forth here? What what are they to be doing? What are we, as God's people, to be doing until he returns? Verse 47, right? That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Luke wants to make very clear to us all the purpose, the Lord's purpose for the church here. And he's not alone. Matthew also puts us at the end of his gospel. And those very well-known words in Matthew 28, Go therefore to all the nations, make disciples, right? And there's no yeah but there. It's go. But, but that go is gloriously buttressed with Jesus saying, Lo, I'm with you always. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And why would Jesus say that? Because sometimes our Christian lives can feel alone, right? Sometimes God can seem so far away. Sometimes we, we lose sight of it. Sometimes we're in this state of discouragement. Lord, where are you at? Jesus wants us to know, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so then, then Luke finishes that gospel, and he begins this, this Acts of the Apostles. It, it's, it's, the, it's the early church history. They're in Acts 1, so you can turn there to Acts 1. And he begins the account by quoting Jesus' final words to his disciples. So it's kind of like, like Acts is just continuing on the gospel of Luke. He's right there, Jesus' final words. Just before he ascends into heaven, we find him saying here in Acts 1, verse 7, they're wanting to know, when are you going to restore the kingdom, Lord? That was a big thing. The Jewish, Jews were waiting for God to restore the kingdom as they knew it. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you, let me tell you what, it, what, what is for you to know, he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is saying, this is the one thing you need to focus on and give your attention to. This one thing right here. Not when God's going to restore Israel, but this one mission, this one message. You are to be my messengers. You are to be my witnesses. Take what I've given you, my gospel, and go share it with others. Declare my glory to the heathen. Declare my glory to the nations, to the, to the lost. Now, the exact time here is not abundantly clear, but it seems approximately about four years um, had passed since Jesus issued that very clear commission to the church. And still we have no, no expansion of Jesus' footprint outside of Jerusalem, his, his kingdom. It's, it's concentrated in Jerusalem at this point in, in the book of Acts. Um, the church was growing quite large 
from Acts 1 all the way up to Acts chapter 6, there's this growth taking place. Peter's preaching. The Lord adds thousands in the church. And one, imagine that, one message adding thousands. And that happened. Happened a couple of times. So the church is growing to this very large capacity. And so, it was so big that there's people getting overlooked. There were problems, just, just real, real logistic problems and getting needs met. And so they resolve that in Acts chapter 6 by selecting some men as deacons to take care of those matters. And, but, but what about Christ's command? What about all Judea and Samaria and, and, the, and the ends of the earth? Well, we get to Acts chapter 7, and there we find Stephen getting stoned. Because he was faithfully preaching Christ as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. But all the Jews could hear in Stephen was anti-Moses, anti-law. That their proud hearts could not receive the truth. And it resulted in this frenzy of rage where Stephen ended up being stoned. Because he was just setting forth Christ. Which led to a full-scale persecution of the church there in Jerusalem. And that persecution was so great, it led to the scattering of the church abroad. If you turn to Acts 1, you'll you'll see that, or Acts 8 rather, Acts chapter 8 verse 1, you'll see this. After the mention of Saul's approval of Stephen's stoning, he was there applauding it, very much in approval. Luke says in Acts 8.1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Now, if we pay close attention here, I I think we will see a parallel to Israel's disobedience resulting in the dispersion and and to their dispersion into exile. I mean, was the church's disobedience to Christ's command to go a result of their dispersion into the very areas God was telling them to go? I think that's very possible, very probable. I mean, the Holy Spirit sees to it that that Jesus' final words of instruction are are recorded in several accounts in the Gospels to underscore the significance of this command, of this commission for the church, proclaiming his name at home and abroad and everywhere in between. And this is what Jesus has called the church to do. Brethren, brethren, that's our marching orders. It really is. They're, and they're not orders just to a pastor or to a missionary. It's, it's, it's given to the church. And it seems the early church did not grasp the significance of these marching orders because there appeared to be no real urgency to, set, to act upon Jesus' command to go. They seem to be more caught up with, with you know, the Jewish resistance that was happening at Jerusalem, preoccupied with spats over Moses' law, and, and so preoccupied with what was going on with their own little kingdom that the, the idea of extending Christ's kingdom was far removed from them. And so God orders up some serious persecution. You see, if, if we don't do what God calls us to do as a church, he'll either remove the candlestick of his presence or he will stir up the kind of providence that's necessary to get his people to do what he's called them to do. And if they don't, they still don't, well, he'll just use other people. Which is really what happens here. I'm getting ahead of myself. But 
In the case of the Jerusalem church, that meant stirring up a certain synagogue against the church that resulted in Stephen's death, which resulted in the level of persecution that scattered the whole church abroad. And someone might say, God would never do that to his people. Well, he he would and he did. Luke records this for us. No doubt the Lord had other, he had additional purposes for Stephen's death. But, But the primary one was the distribution of his people into Judea and Samaria and beyond. Because he said, you will be my witnesses. <laughs> One way or another, he, he, he meant it, you will be. And that, that word scattered there in verse 1 is the verb form of the noun dys- dysporia, which, which James and Peter use in their op- opening of their letters. James says in his opening of his letter, he says, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That, that's our word scattered here in 8.1. The believing Jews were, were dispersed or scattered throughout the, the regions of Judea and Samaria in the wake of Stephen's death. And Luke draws our attention to the, to the Spirit's work amongst the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And why is this unique or important? Well, I, I think it's both, because the Jews did not have dealings with Samaritans. They just didn't. You remember, maybe you don't know, but the Samaritans in the Bible were half-breed Jews. They were the product of, when, when Israel was sent into captivity in Assyria, they were children of captivity. See, they were made of Jewish blood and Assyrian blood. And uh, they, they weren't quite Gentile status, but pretty close. The Jews looked very much down at them. And it was a true reflection. You remember what they called Jesus? They regarded Jesus as a Samaritan who has a demon. That was a reflection of their heart toward the Samaritans. Um, And that mentality was, was really a great stumbling block to the first century Jewish believers in Christ. Looking down their noses at another people group that wasn't exactly like them. They had yet to understand the extent to which Christ's gospel had placed everyone on on level footing and obliterated all the racial and ethnic divisive nonsense that sought to establish superiority based upon those distinctions, which sadly still exists today. So what does the Lord do? He blows up Samaria with the gospel. (laughs) I love it. I mean, only God would do that. And And he sends the very... Jewish Peter and very Jewish John to go there and to witness it and to deal with it. So they get there and it's like, okay, we can't deny this is the hand of God. (laughs) But but you see, the problem is, brethren, it doesn't go any further than Samaria. I mean, God's trying to make this thing happen. Well, he is making it happen. Trying to get his people to see it. Okay, this is what I'm calling you to do. They they witness it. they, They recognize it. They identify it. But it doesn't go anywhere. They're very slow with getting on Jesus' program. And so the Lord saves his man for the Gentiles in Acts chapter 9, Saul. This is then followed by the Lord taking Peter. Okay, you're not getting this yet. So he takes Peter to Cornelius' doorstep. You remember Peter? The whole sheet vision? Acts chapter 10. He said, it's time. We've got to get this thing going, boys. You've got to get on board here. And, and Peter, Cornelius, he was a, he was a well-respected man, but nonetheless, he was a Gentile man. And uh, the Lord teaches Peter that he was not to show any partiality. 
He was no longer regarded Gentiles as, as, as unclean, but they too were to be made targets of gospel mercy, just like Peter and the other apostles were. And sure enough, Peter preaches Christ, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his family, and they get baptized. And in the last verse there, chapter 10, they asked Peter, I mean, the impact was so great, they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Meanwhile, as we begin chapter 11, the church in Jerusalem catches wind of this, and they want to talk to Peter, not because they heard the wondrous news of Gentiles being saved so much, but they want to know why Peter was hanging out with, with Gentiles, eating with them. Again, this was an unthinkable thing to do as a Jew. And so Peter reiterates for them everything that took place, explaining to the other apostles in the church there, the church leaders in Jerusalem, how the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles just like he did us, brethren. And I love how Luke records their, their response in verse 18. <laughs> then they heard these things. When they heard these things, they fell silent. You better believe they fell silent. Who ever heard of God dealing, saving Gentiles, dealing, dealing with Gentiles, accepting Gentiles, accepting, God accepting that which is unclean? Hallelujah, he does. And at least they acknowledge that at the end of verse 18. It says, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. But brethren, as wonderful as that acknowledgement was, it prompted none of the disciples to say, okay, brethren, let's go. Let's strategize how to take the gospel now to the Gentiles. Nope. Had it been left to the apostles there in Jerusalem, the Gentiles would have remained unreached. But praise God, there were some. There were some who knew what Christ was calling the church to do at large. And Luke introduces these guys to us in the verses we opened up with. These men who are part of the outer wave of this dispersion, of this scattering of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And here it is, brethren, on full display, how deeply ingrained and exclusive the Jewish mindset was. Seeking, or speaking rather, the word to no one except Jews. Now, I don't know what the apostles were teaching the church there in Jerusalem um, during that four-year period prior to their being scattered abroad, but it certainly doesn't seem that they were teaching that Christ's gospel made Jew and Gentile equal. Or that it made them all one in Christ Jesus. At least not at this point. It doesn't appear to be the case. Verse 20, I love verse 20. Because it conveys to us exactly how God has most commonly advanced his kingdom. But there were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. You see that? There were some of them. We're not even told who they were. No names. 
These were not distinguished people. These were, they didn't carry any specific title or didn't carry some important office. If they did, the Holy Spirit didn't feel, feel the need to tell us about it. We're just simply told there were some of them. Some small group of no-name believers. There's no marquee names here. No Peter, no Paul, no John, no, no big stars. Just a, a bunch of average, little small group of average Joes. But they're not just average in the eyes of God. In fact, the Holy Spirit finds these guys noteworthy. These are guys that needed to be pointed out in the early history of the church. Why? I see at least two reasons why. One, brethren, this is how God predominantly builds and advances kingdom. Faithful, average, obedient Christ lovers. That's it. Simply going about and doing what God commanded them to do. Not, not people of great standing, great gifting. People simply trusting in a great God to carry out what he has said he will do. People walking by faith and not by sight. By faith spreading Christ's gospel. And I think this is why the Holy Spirit hides their identity from us. Because it had nothing to do with who they were specifically. It had everything to do with their obedience to and faith in Jesus Christ. They were obeying the Great Commission here. And they were doing it, breaking the mold that was set before them. Which is, I think, the second reason why I believe the Holy Spirit mentions them. What was unique about these guys? Let's read verse 20 and you tell me. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. What's unique about them? First off, these guys were Jews. But, but they were not from Jerusalem. They must have been visiting or staying there temporarily when the persecution arose. Or maybe they, 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 they had moved to Jerusalem at one point and became members of the church. It's not real clear, but what is clear, these guys were originally from another, from another region. Cyprus is where it still is today, sitting there in the Mediterranean Sea on the, on the west coast, right next to the west coast of, of Lebanon in, in Syria. And Cyrene is in the northern part of Africa where Libya is today. Being from those places would have most likely made these Greek-speaking Jews. Because both those places were heavily populated by, 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 by Greeks and Romans. Regardless, this, these men did not go into Antioch looking for people like themselves. They were not seeking to congregate with their own little comfort zone of Greek-speaking Jews. No, they were, they were on a mission. What made them unique is they were hunting down these Hellenists, not, not other Jews. I, I think they learned something from their experience in the Jerusalem church. These men came to Antioch, and verse 20 says, they spoke the word to Hellenists. Now, a number of your translations say Greeks. And I wish the ESV did, too, because I think it's, it's more accurate. A Hellenist can, be, can, can, can represent a Greek-speaking Jew. That's true. The, the, the Greek word here. And it, but it can also represent an actual Gentile who speaks Greek and lives in, with Greek customs. They follow Greek customs. 
Obviously, the context here suggests they were Gentiles. Luke is seeking to distinguish these guys, different from the rest, from those who were only speaking to the Jews. Now, it was good that they were speaking the word to the Jews, but these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they understood something the others had not yet understood. They broke the mold of sharing God's word with Jews only. And they were looking for, at the broader picture. And brethren, there's, something, there's certainly a principle for us to draw from here. We have a tendency to be very me-centered. We do. Where our scope of living gets so preoccupied with me and the people directly associated with the world around me. I'm, not, I'm just talking like my wife, my hus- you know, or husband, or children, or you know, extended family, relatives. Even my people group, Right? And consequently, we give no, no, little or no regard to those who are not part of us. And that's not how God calls us to live as Christians. It just isn't. Brethren, as Christians, we, we don't want to give place to that kind of fleshly, carnal mindset that elevates our own people group above others, be it our own family members or our own ethnicity above others. Human beings by nature have a tendency to congregate themselves with, you know, and have in favor of those that are similar to those in their flesh. Even, it's, it's just very natural. And even though it's natural, it's not the purpose of God for the church, that's for sure. And it's grieving for me when I step into, thankfully I haven't had to do that much, but stepping into modern day church settings where, where the people gathered do not properly represent the demographic of the city they reside in. You know, the makeup of the church should reflect the, the dem- demographic spectrum of, of the people that live in the city. I mean, that's just that's the way it should be. I'm sorry, but walking into an all-white or all-black or all-Hispanic English-speaking church, those churches have missed it. They have. And as churches, we should reject any kind of mentality that caters to that. And thankfully, we don't have that here. <laughs> I praise God for that. But, oh, brethren, that's, that's the mentality that the Jews had to break free from. It, it requires God's grace to break that. And yet, here you have these brethren from Cyprus and Cyrene. They had it. They understood what really mattered. And they lived their lives according to it. They realized this thing of Christianity is not just for Jews. And, and Gentiles don't need to be made Jews. They understood that God was calling the church to be the means to take his gospel outside their Jewish context and into the world. And that meant getting out of their own comfort zone of what they were familiar with. That meant they had a higher regard for those who were not, quote, them. They realized this and they were gripped with Gentiles needing to believe in Jesus just like us. And so, verse 20, is, verse 20 indicates, These men from Cyprus and Cyrene went about preaching the Lord Jesus. Brethren, they went big. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, second to Rome and Alexandria. And it was a melting pot of all types of people groups. It was, there was Greeks, there was Romans, there was Arabs, there was Jews. It was, it was a political center, it was a commercial center, and it was, a, it was a morally bankrupt center. In fact, right outside the city, there was a park or a grove of trees called the, the, the Grove of Apollo. And uh, 
It was nothing short of an outdoor brothel where all manner of wickedness took place. This was a city that was alienated and far from God. A city completely ignorant of and strangers to the covenants of promise. And yet right there, in that most unlikely spot, these men start preaching Christ. (laughs) That's a place just as weird, if not weirder, than Austin. (laughs) And guess what? Verse 21 tells them, and the hand of God was with them. And the evidence of such? A great number. A great number of these wicked, alienated folks believed and turned to the Lord. A great number. This was no small tent revival or some man-made fabrication of flesh. I mean, God's hand was upon these brethren. This was a great movement of the Spirit. So much so that news traveled all the way down to Jerusalem, which would have been about 300 miles south of them. And when Jerusalem hears about this, verse 22, they determined to send Barnabas. Send Barnabas down there and see what's going on. You can imagine this, right? First, first, you have this bizarre, unprecedented event where Peter, uh, Peter comes into contact with this Gentile soldier, Cornelius, right? And God saves them. They couldn't deny it. The Holy Spirit, they were speaking in tongues. I mean, the evidence was there. But, you know, it was kind of this isolated event. It was Cornelius and his family, and it, it was kind of shocking. But now we're talking about great numbers of Gentiles here. Claiming faith in Christ in Antioch of all places. I mean, what is this? So so they determined not to send apostles, but they determined to send Barnabas this time. And and verse 24 tells us that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You catch that? A good man. The Bible testifies that Barnabas as a Christian is a good man. Away with this desperately wicked wretched man syndrome Christianity. I mean, brethren, think about it. When something good gets deposited in you, when God saves you, what what good gets deposited in you? God himself, right? (laughs) And God himself, when God himself dwells in a believer, there's good there, and he produces good through you. And so God can rightly and accurately say, the Holy Spirit can, through the inspired pen of Luke, say, he's a good man, because he was a good man. That was Barnabas. And we're first introduced to Barnabas back in chapter 4. We won't look at that. But we're told there that he owned some property. He sold it, brought the proceeds, laid them at the apostles' feet to meet the needs within the church. Anybody here know Barnabas' real name? Some Bible trivia you can put in your back pocket for people. Joseph was actually was actually his real name. The disciples called him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. And he was, of all things, he was a Levite from Cyprus. So it makes sense the church would send him due to his background and his gifting. He was a Cyprus man and he had this gift of encouragement. He's a guy who's not going to be paralyzed in the presence of of Gentiles because he grew up around them. He's not going to be a guy who's going to freak out when the Gentiles don't start doing things like the church down in, in uh, Jerusalem was doing. Or, or throw a fit once they break out the pork tenderloins or the bacon-wrapped tri-tips. No, he's, probably, he was, he's probably doing grill duty on the fellowship days, eating up all this food that the Jews couldn't have before. But, but this is the same man who took Paul to the apostles. 
back in, in, in Acts chapter 9. He introduces the apostles who were kind of trembling. They were afraid of, of talking to Paul because of the reputation Paul had of killing Christians. This is right after God saves him. The, the apostles were apprehensive to talk to him. Barnabas brings him to the, uh, the apostles in that first meeting. So Barnabas, Barnabas gets there, and he's assessing the situation. And you know what he discovers? Verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. I think it's an understatement. Barnabas could see with his own eyes God's grace at work in these Gentiles. The very Jews who were convinced these people were cursed of God. Now he's confessing and telling back to Jerusalem, no, no, God's hands on these people. I could see the grace of God at work in them. People from this very godless, they didn't have any background, godless pagan background, ignorant of the true God until these men from Cyprus and Cyrene arrive at the scene. Now they're made worshipers of Jesus Christ by grace, and Barnabas was glad. So he starts teaching them. Barnabas starts teaching them everything he knew about this God that had saved him. And the Holy Spirit summarizes Barnabas' teaching with this one phrase in the second half of verse 23. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This is how Barnabas encouraged them. Brethren, remain faithful. Live with steadfast purpose. That was his message to the believers there at Antioch. The word steadfast purpose is actually one Greek word, it's prothesis, which, which means to set, to set out or set forth before. It's actually, in the New Testament, it, it's translated showbread, depending on your translation, or the present, bread of presence. Um, it was part of the temple worship. The, the priests were ordered to set out the, the bread of the presence um, in the temple excuse me, every Sabbath day. It was, it was a food offering to God. But only Aaron and the priests could eat this food. And it primarily symbolized the presence of God. And, and ultimately, Christ's continual presence with the believer. The bread of presence. The bread that's set out or set forth to the people. So Luke turns around, and by Holy Spirit inspiration, he tells us that this is what Barnabas taught and encouraged the church to remain faithful in. Setting forth God's truth with intention, with purpose. That's my aim today, brethren. To remain faithful. To remain faithful in setting forth Christ's gospel in your lives and in this city and that's what I want to encourage you today with. I know it can be discouraging. It's to myself as well. I mean, as we're laboring on the campus, as we're laboring in the city, as we have, you know, efforts to evangelize and, you know, sharing the gospel with people at work, whatever your realm is, you know, we want to see fruit. We do. And it can be discouraging when you're, when you're constant and faithful in doing it and you don't see the fruit. It's a test of our faith, I believe. And so when you labor that way, when distractions come along, oh, we're, it, we're, we're so much more prone to fall for the distractions, to take us away to that, to that goal, that purpose that God's given us. I know that personally myself. 
And so I exhort you and I exhort myself, (laughs) stay true and faithful to the Lord. Commit your way to him. Abandon this hopeless world with all its temptation, vain temptations. and Just try to seek to to steer you away, keep you from living a gospel-centered life. Brethren, don't veer off to the left or to the right. Be faithful in spreading his truth abroad in whatever realm God's been pleased to, to put you in. That's his call upon us, to proclaim his name to the nations. We are his witnesses, and there are a thousand things to keep us from doing that very thing. In fact, there's a lot of popular movements right now, you know, trends and temptations that serve to pull the church away from this main task. We, and brethren, we just can't take heed to them. We can't fall prey to them. They're distractions from what God has called the church to be and to do. We need to stay true. And, and to stay true, the way to stay true and remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose is to make much of Christ and, and much of his gospel. Keep it central to your life and keep it central to the life of this church. There's nothing more important. And brethren, that has... Nothing to do with the pastor. It really doesn't, per se. It's to the church. The church and all her members need to be living in light of this great purpose that God has given to us. And that doesn't mean everyone in the church is called to stand up here and preach like I'm doing. That's not it at all. Or that everyone's called to be a missionary or everyone's called to, to you know, be out in the streets evangelizing. But we, we, we need to be light. We are the light of the world. In whatever dark places God would have us, in the home, and just in the dark world of our own children's minds that are set apart from God, and they haven't shown any faith or demonstration that they love Christ. And sometimes our sphere is very small, but it doesn't make it insignificant. That sphere might be the home, it might be the workplace, or the marketplace, or our neighborhoods. But it means the whole church is united in this one effort. To make Christ known among the heathen. And this is done in many different ways. I mean, God gives his churches different gifts. Gifts of mercy. Gifts of serving. Gifts of teaching. Gifts of of giving. Gifts of prayer. In fact, you know, some saints, that their, their greatest contribution to the advancement of Christ's kingdom is through prayer. On their knees. That's no light thing. It's no small potatoes. In fact... Ultimately, prayer is, is the exercise of God's people in, in carrying out the Great Commission. I mean, I, I count Wednesday nights as the most significant night of the week. When we're gathering together and, and praying before the living God. I mean, if, if we trust what Jesus says, we're moving mountains. We're conquering kingdoms. There's, 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 there's clashes that are taking place in the spiritual realm through the prayers of God's people. Who can put a price on that? Prayer is the essential weapon needed to pierce the realm of darkness and rescue lost sinners from it. Prayer is what brings down those strongholds. But brethren, God gives various gifts which he intends to be used in various different ways to accomplish this main purpose. Exalting his son and using that exaltation to gather in those for whom he died. And we're the means. We never want to lose sight of that. We don't have to be impressed with our means. God's not asking you to be impressed with the gifts he's given you. Just use them. And use the opportunities he puts before you. These men of, of Cyprus and Cyrene, they did. They trusted God, and God blessed them as a result. 
And as a result, Barnabas joins them, and then Paul joins them. And notice what happens here. Bar- Barnabas sets himself to exhorting these brethren to continue doing what they were doing. And while, while he's continuing teaching them what he knew, at the end of verse 24, it says, a great many people were added to the Lord. I mean, there was already a great number of people. But through Barnabas exhorting them to live with steadfast purpose, the Lord was pleased to add more. What does that imply? It implies this church was actively proclaiming Christ outside the church. It implies these brethren were very evangelistic in their efforts to to serve the Lord with steadfast purpose. After all, what is required for people to believe? We've got to have faith, right? How, How does faith come? Hearing. Ears coming into contact or eyes coming into contact with truth. And so this thing, this thing's growing exponentially. Barnabas reaches a point where he's either taught him everything he knows or he just got so overwhelmed by the need that maybe both. So he, so he determines more resources are needed. But instead of turning to the apostles at Jerusalem, he decides to go visit Paul at Tarsus. Something told him Paul was the man for the job. So verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with a church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I mean, think about this. Saul, the very one who caused all the persecution that dispersed all these church members, is now the very same person who's taking the me- that message to the Gentiles in Antioch. I mean, o- only God would do that. That's amazing. I find that just incredibly amazing. Verse 27, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. (laughs) And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. History suggests that the Lord did bring a famine throughout Judea, just in Judea, the Judean area in 47 A.D. And you wonder, why would the Lord bring a famine in 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 the area of the church? Church of Jerusalem. Well, I think we can, thinking upon this text, we should be able to come up with that, right? I mean, the Jews still needed to be humbled, for one. And, and, and what, was, it, was it again to, to get their attention and to, to launching folks into the harvest fields? The, the most probable reason behind that famine was the great gulf that still existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And what better way <laughs> to remedy that than for a proud Jew to be made a recipient of wealthy Gentiles that God used to meet their impoverished need? I mean, again, just only God could do this. Here you have these Jews that have been decreased into a humble state through a famine. God brings in all these rich Gentiles wealth. 
to meet their needs. <laughs> it's incredible. God designed. The Lord, this is just, this is just phenomenal, this, this, this passage of Scripture, that God did what he did in Antioch. And here we have this, this wicked city that God invades by his spirit through these men, God, just godless people that were ignorant of him. He saves them and gives them a tender, compassionate heart generous heart to meet the needs of the very same people that had difficulty seeing them as anything other than dogs. And those dogs turn around and meet their needs. Then he takes this, this, this unlikely bunch here, these nobodies, and he uses them to establish a church that, would, that he would use to launch his campaign for the nations, brethren. Because in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas would be sent forth from this church as the first missionary voyage. And brethren, the world would never be the same again. And it all started from this ragtag little group here of believers who simply obeyed the Great Commission. Trusting God. In fact, the first... Oftentimes, it gets, you hear that Paul and Barnabas were the first missionary team. They were not the first missionary team. The first missionary team was these bold, brave, obedient group of no-names from Cyrene and Cyprus. They were instruments that God used to plant this church that would then be the church that would first launch its first missionary campaign into the world. The greatest missionary sending church in the history of the church, really. Paul and Barnabas, all that Paul did came out of that church of Antioch. And brethren, in closing, the mission's not yet accomplished. That's why we're still here. Otherwise, we'd be with the Lord right now. And we must carry on with these brethren started. There are Gentiles that still need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in this city of Austin. Currently enslaved in, in darkness and sin. But the gospel, we have the gospel that will set them free. And brethren, like I said, I praise God that you have remained faithful in gathering together weekly to worship, to center God's word, and especially to come together and pray. And brother, I pray that God would help you continue to remain faithful with steadfast purpose to reach this city with the truth. In whatever ways God's gifted you and enabled you and burdened you. And I don't even know. Maybe you guys are already doing this weekly. I don't, I don't know what kind of uh, activities or outreaches you have. But I'm, I, was hope, I hope to stir up this uh, burden and gifting in you. Um, yes, because like I said, it can be, it can be discouraging. You continue doing that and not seeing fruit. We had, uh, I just came from... I went to the, the uh, first hour, the first service down in San Antonio. And we got a brother from Nepal with his wife visiting us. And uh, he was sharing. Uh, he, he first got married there. He went to Nepal. The first like year and a half in Nepal was very discouraging because they had disciplined somebody. The people were leaving the church. And there was no converts. It was just God. They hadn't seen anybody save any. He hadn't, they just hadn't seen any salvation. And so the Floreses, they, they moved there a few years ago just to, just to be a support there and my members in the church. Justin, he had a guy who delivered water to the house, and he gave him a gospel of John. That was the extent of it. 
Gave him a gospel, John, didn't really think much of it. And then he stopped coming to the house. Another guy was delivering water, so he didn't think he'd ever see the guy again. Well, months later, he comes back, and and he tells him how uh, he was speaking against worshiping gods that uh, made with human hands. And Justin was like, he'd never talked like this before. And he started asking all these questions and mentioning all these things. He got out of the Gospel of John, and God saved the man. And... uh, I mean, just like that, just being faithful to hand out a New Testament or just a gospel track or a gospel of John. We have a guy who's visiting right now, um, Larry. One brother. <laughs> this brother has only come to Campus Evangelism one time. It was, it was uh, last spring. He handed a track to a guy. Didn't really even have a conversation with him. But based on the track and our address on there, he shows up at the church. He's still visiting right to this day. <laughs> and so, I mean, you don't know what God's going to use. But he, he uses means, right? In those, both those cases, he used those means of those brothers just being faithful. Um, I got a brother. In, in fact, James sent me a message with, with a picture of a guy. Uh, Hunter is a brother in the church. He's been faithfully trying to evangelize his co-workers and one of his co-workers God saved just by sharing the gospel with him he showed up today actually he's been there for a couple weeks now but he's all zealous and on fire for the Lord wants to be baptized and again just here's a brother what's his sphere of influence his sphere of evangelism just being light in the workplace yes doing his job doing what he's paid to do but looking for open doors to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God used it, saved his soul. So, so we have these isolated events. This is how God works. Just as we're faithful in sowing seed. And, with, and we're living with a mindset of sowing seed. Not, not a mindset of, oh, we're just constantly inundated, brethren, with you know, the American dream. Just consuming upon ourselves. Living for this world. Living to the end of just self-pleasure. When our mind is is set and focused on sowing the seeds of God's gospel and his truth, God uses it. And we just got to trust him. He'll use it in ways that... I'm sure there's other instances where people, where tracts have been sent out in in our evangelism we may never even know about until we get to eternity. But think about it. Your efforts toward the kingdom, toward expanding Christ's kingdom, if God uses you to rescue one soul from hell... I mean, what kind of price tag can you put on that? And so, that's what I had to bring today. I guess that would be a good transition into the Lord's table. Um, I mean, Jesus is worthy of it, brethren. We're here, I trust, because Christ rescued us. And he rescued us from, with the truth of the gospel. We have a treasure. And you know, this cursed flesh of ours, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, right? That's a saying because it's true. We can get so used to truth. And I'm telling you, I'm, as a pastor, I have to fight this. The familiarity with truth. 
It's like, Lord, win me afresh again. I want the reality of the I want to preach a real God. I want to live a real gospel. I don't want to just articulate stuff off my tongue because I know it. God, spare us of that. Give us a deep, real, living communion with you. A deep walk with the living God. Brethren, that's, that's possible through the cross, through the gospel. That's what God intends for us. And I think if you're a Christian for any length of time, you've known something of that, and the nearness of God, and you also, sadly, you know the distance from God. And this thing just kind of goes like this, right? And that's one of the reasons why the Lord implemented the table, because he knows that's a reality. And we need to be reminded. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And there's something about, I mean, Jesus implemented this thing. Baptism and that. These are the two ordinances God gave us. There's something about this activity that is God designed to make God real to us and make the cross real and precious. And you, but you know as well as I, we even have to fight that, the familiarity of this thing, right? So so we want, Lord Jesus, be real. Draw near to us in the remembrance of you, Lord. Help us. Help us remember. I I didn't really realize I was going to be doing this, but let me just just turn to 1 Peter real quick. You guys can come up and get your... I'm not really... I don't know what the... I mean, Raymond explained it to me, but you know what? Sometimes it's good just to blow up tradition. (laughs) You go ahead and come get your elements, and then we'll we'll, uh, proceed here just with a few short words. Wow, this looks like some real unleavened bread. Somebody made this, didn't they? What's that? Maria. Wow. It's pretty impressive. All right. I guess I'll, I'll just make some, some comments while you're coming up and getting the elements. Uh, Peter, First Peter 2. Hmm. Just some precious truth he mentions here. Peter says he committed no sin, talking about Jesus. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, which these things point to, brethren, by his wounds you are healed. I just started a series in, in the Gospel of Mark. And I never really, in any depth, studied out Jesus' baptism. But you know that G- John's baptism was a baptism of what? Repentance, right? It's not the same kind of baptism that you and I had as believers. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a call of Israel to come and repent. Demonstrate your repentance. And so those waters were symbolic of, in symbolism, they were symbolizing the washing away of sin, right? And think about it. Think about that scene. The sinless, perfect, unblemished Lamb of God walked down into those, into those sin, all, all Israel, the scripture says, came to those waters and were getting baptized by John. And symbolically, all their sins being washed away in that water. So it's like Jesus symbolically is stepping down into that water, that sin-filled water, the perfect spotless lamb of God. And John dunks him down into that sin-filled water. 
What's happening? Why, is, why did Jesus get back? Listen, we just read it. No sin. He committed no sin. The Hebrew writer says he's been tempted at all points as we are, but yet without sin. Paul writes to Corinthians and says, uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus, it's clear, the clear testimony of Scripture, he's he never sinned. So how could the sinless Son of God go down into the waters that we're completely identifying as filthy and sin and wicked, all the wickedness of the Israelites, which was symbolic of the world, of humanity. It was just that. He was identifying with his people in those waters. This reality, it was pointing toward a baptism of death right here that Peter talks about. He himself, he was going, he was about to, he was pointing forward to being immersed into the sins of his people, his people Bearing the sins of his people in his body on that tree. Your sin and my sin. The sin, yes, you committed this morning or last night or this last week that grieves your soul. Jesus knows that. He knows how weak we are and how much we need to be reminded that our sins are, are, what's he say here? By his wounds you are healed. Brethren, by his wounds, because of this, we have access to God. We have fellowship to God. We are reconciled to the living God. We know God. We're going to live with him forever because of this. Lord, help us. Help us to see it more. Help us to enter into it more. So, brethren, Jesus calls us to eat these elements that represent his body and his blood. And these elements represent his body and blood that was, that was provided for us as a substitute. When we look at the cross, you know what we should see? That's me. That's exactly what I deserve. And Jesus stood in my place. And, that's his, and, that, and it speaks of his commitment to us. If Jesus did that for me, you think he's going to bail on me because I had a bad week? Right, I, I said something I shouldn't have said to my wife or my husband. We got this stupid argument that we're, we, we've been silent and haven't talked to each other for the last day and a half. I mean, just the, the, the foolishness of sin that happens in relationships in our life. Jesus came to, take, to wipe it away. And the grati- this remembrance should produce the gratitude. I mean, it's intended to produce, to produce the kind of gratitude that we run out and just serve and tell others to, about this Christ who's so wonderful. It doesn't, doesn't deal with us according to our sins. Praise God, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. So, brethren, let's, let's eat this in remembrance of him. Wow. Tell Maria that's the best Christ has ever tasted. <laughs> At least in communion. That is wonderful bread. Wow. That's appropriate, right? Taste and see that he is good. And you know what? God gives us taste buds for that very reason. It's just the tip of the iceberg of who the person of God is. He's bringing us into, I mean, I like that psalm. I like that hymn. We're finding out the greatness of his loving heart. That's what we are as Christians. We're just discovering this thing. In all our weakness and failures, we're we're just barely discovering the wonder of who God is. But it costs something. It costs his blood. Brethren, this... Think upon that as we drink this. Lord, I think about the hymn, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give.
Lord, Lord, free us to give more. Give of ourselves. I pray, give us individually, Lord. You haven't called us to, to be exactly what these men are. You haven't called us to come go to some other city and stand outside and start preaching. But Lord, give us the spirit that these men from Cyprus and Cyrene that they had. They were so consumed with the Lord Jesus and his, and his cause and his purpose. Lord, help us to be that. Lord, thank you for saving us. Lord, please don't let us waste our lives. Let us treasure the Lord Jesus Christ and worship him for he's worthy. We thank you. We pray you bless our time of fellowship now and the food. And thank you again for these brethren. It's good to be to gather together with them and, and to be here with you, Lord. And thank you for your kindness.